Welcome to another episode of South Asian Stories. I'm your host, Samir Desai. My guest today is Kovid Gupta. Kovid is an author, screenwriter, filmmaker, and social activist. At the age of 22, he moved from Texas to Mumbai to pursue his dream of breaking into Bollywood. Spoiler alert, he did it. He has worked on some of South Asia's biggest TV brands as content developer, creative consultant, and screenwriter. In 2017, he was named on Forbes 30 Under 30. He has headed business development at Vinod Chopra Films. He has served as an assistant director of Prem Ratan Dhanpayo, the fourth highest growing Bollywood film of all time, and has written two nonfiction books, Kingdom of the Soap Queen, the story of Balaji Telefilms, and Redrawing India, the Teach for India story. He has also founded India Kids, a nonprofit that works to empower orphan children. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Kovid is an absolute rock star, and his stories are truly inspiring. So please enjoy my conversation with Kovid Gupta. All right, Kovid, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Man, we're really excited to have you on. I think uh, your background and your... Your story is just so fascinating and and something that I I know a lot of people have been asking to to hear about. So I want to jump in very quickly to your background. I know we share similar roots to uh, being from Texas and and, and, and being from Houston and then going to UT. Can you talk a little bit about what your childhood was like and growing up here in in, in Texas? Yeah. So, Samir, you know, what's interesting is, uh, so I actually spent the first 10 years of my life in Indiana. In a very small town. Oh, uh, were, okay. Yeah, there were only three Indian families uh, in the town that I was in, and my sister and I were the only kids in our, only Indian kids in our elementary school. So you know, you know, access and exposure to Bollywood was very limited. Um, the only access and exposure I had was you know, w- once every month my family used to go to Chicago, and my parents would buy a bunch of video cassettes and audio tapes. And uh, that was really the only exposure I had to it, you know. So exposure was limited, but there was this, you know, certain attraction with uh, Hindi cinema and with the songs especially of of movies back in the 90s. Um, So, you know, when I moved to Texas as a a teenager almost, I realized, you know, Houston is a very big city. And I realized that there is a lot of opportunity to explore those Bollywood-like interests, and, you know, we had, you know, we have Indian movie theaters in Houston, which was a novelty for me. So being able to go and watch Hindi movies on the big screen was, was extremely sort of, you know, it was, it was a very surreal experience for me. And I think watching all those films uh, as a child growing up really shaped my, shaped my dreams and shaped my ambitions. Um, Apart from that, you know, in the 2000s, Dish Network became very big. (laughs) <laughs> uh, in, in NRI households in America and having Indian television playing in your house 24 hours a day. I think for, for most, uh, for most uh, second generation kids, that was probably very irritating. But uh, for me, it was actually very fascinating. Um, and uh, I, I credit Indian television a lot also for my, for, for what I am today. So, so I, I, I want to jump into that. You said that television really inspired you was there any shows or or movies that that come to mind when you think about wow this was the momentous occasion where i'm like i really yeah, like I, this yeah yeah so actually yes uh when it comes to movies um you know there's two directors that i've always looked up to one is yash chopra and the other is suraj Barjatia. 
Um, and uh, their their films really, really shaped me as a person. Uh, to name a few of their films, you know, Chandani, Lamhe, Hum Aapke Hain Kaun, Hum Saath Saath Hain. Um, I think Hum Saath Saath Hain was the film. I was 11 years old when I went to see it. When I went to, uh, when I went to the theater. And uh, when I walked out of the theater, I told myself I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, so that was one of those films that really cemented my ambition uh, to make films and uh, you know it's my it's my my good luck that the first film that I worked on in Bollywood was a Swedish Prajatiya film really uh, yeah which was which was Prem Ritam Bio. so I think it was a uh, you know poetic justice or whatever <laughs> whatever you want to call it no that I, it all came full circle for you and it, it, absolutely absolutely yeah you know uh, so I think I think that was a uh, very very special for me so let's go. Let's go back to the, you. You're, you're you're 11 yourself. You saw the movie. What about it really made you say like, I want to become a filmmaker? Was it just the the storyline or the, the the characters, the 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 plot? What about it was inspiring yeah. to you? You know, uh, the reason I fell in love with Bollywood, you know, as opposed to Hollywood, was because Bollywood movies, especially those back in the 90s had this way of creating a utopia on screen, right? A perfect world where everything works out in the end and all relationships get patched up and everybody is happy and everything is glorious and, you know, the, the world is a perfect place. And that is that escapism from reality is what fascinated me so much, you know? The, the fact that, you know, no matter what's going on in your life, for those three hours you can sit inside of an air-conditioned cinema hall and escape into a dream, a dream reality that you'd like to be a part of, um, the, the ideal world that that we all want to live in, you know. So, Hamsat um, Sathya in particular was was you know in fact one of the criticisms that movie gets a lot, movie gets very frequently is that it's too good to be true, it's too cheesy, it's too corny. Um, but but for me that was the big thing, right? Like everything is so perfect in relationships and values and beliefs and. And, and that's really what, what got to me in that film. Um, I'm also somebody who values Indian culture a lot. And, it, you know, it disappoints me that our films today don't showcase enough of Indian culture. Uh, that was a film that was soaked in Indian culture, you know. Um, and I think I, I, I love the fact that it, it talked about, you know, families and, and the importance of staying together um, and the importance of caring for each other. And that is what really, really, I think, struck at my heart. Yeah, and and I love how you said that it 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 brought back an Indian culture that you haven't found before. And is yeah. that um, so? Once you w- once you decided, hey, this is my path, and this is something that I want to do. What happened? I I, I know I, I read a, a few profiles that talked about no connections in the industry. Yeah. You know, you, you, you tell us the story of like of how you sent. Was it 400 Facebook messages to yeah. to the right people? Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, you know, it's a very funny story. So, you know, I, as you said, I have no connections in the industry. I'm not even from Bombay, you know, natively, ancestrally. Uh, so, so knew nobody in the city and was completely clueless as to how to get in. Um, and, you know, growing up as the son of Indian immigrants, obviously, you know, there are certain expectations from your family as well as to what you're going to do with your life. So it, it was it was very funny. So when I was, uh, you know, when I was at UT with you and I was a senior, I just literally, you know, I used to watch TV serials and I used to write down the names that used to come on the credits, written by, directed by, produced by. Then I would go on Facebook. I would find these people. I would send them friend requests and then I would message them. 
Uh, and the message would just say, you know, hi, XYZ, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, can you tell me how I could become like you? And uh, I found about 100 people. And over the course of about six months, I messaged these 100 people every single week. Wow. Uh, every week. <laughs> every week. Every week, the exact same message, exact same message would go out. And I and I figured that, you know, one of two things can happen. Either, they, either they'll get sick of me and they'll reply to me, or they'll get sick of me and they'll block me. Right. I, I don't have anything to lose here. So I I just kept doing that, kept doing that, kept doing that. And uh, I got about five percent uh, of the people replied back to me, mostly, with, you know, with just lousy replies like, oh, yeah, go to a film school or, oh, this is too tough. You're not going to be able to break in or things like that. Right. But uh, there was one man. Uh, his name is Rajesh Dube. He was one of the writers of a show called Bali Gavadu, with uh, which my with my good fortune was actually the number one show in India at the time. And he said, uh, you know, whenever you come to India, you can come and meet me. So I graduated from college and I landed up in India with my suitcases and I went and met him and, and he asked me to write him a sample episode, which I did. And uh, that's how the ball got rolling. You know, um, I started working with him and, and slowly, slowly a month later, he gave me a check uh, of, of of a certain amount and I realized okay well he's paying me something so I think I'm on the right track and you know and then two months later my name started appearing on Bali Kavadu as one of the writers so that's that's really how the ball got rolling I wish I had a magic formula but there really there really isn't one so tell me uh when you got the message you know to come over there and, yeah. and, and start writing what was going through your head how were you feeling were you nervous were you like this is my my chance like what was going through your head you know, I was uh, I was nervous, I was apprehensive, but I was, you know, I've always been a dreamer. So I I have never ever um, never ever kept even a one percent doubt of something not happening. So I said, if I'm going to go, I'm going to do this. Um, you know, I didn't know if I would land up as a writer on that show specifically, but but I was I but in my head I was very clear that if I'm going to go to India, I'm going to do something with my time there. Um, so there was, there wasn't, you know, and this may be termed as being overconfident, but I wasn't, there was no doubt at any point that, uh, oh, what if I don't make it or what's going to happen or, you know, and, and none of that was there. Good, good. And yeah. so when you, when you met him for the first time, wh what was that experience like? Was, was he different from what you had pictured? Was, was he, was he nicer? What, what was that like? Yeah, he was very nice. He was very nice. And, you know, he sort of, uh, he asked me, you know, do you watch Hindi television? Okay, well, what sort of shows do you watch? And what do you like? And what do you not like? And why do you want to join this industry? And it, it was very casual. You know, there wasn't any interview. It was very casual. And he said, okay, write me an episode. You can come every day, sit with me for a few hours. So it was very organic. And then when when you guys were writing episodes, like talk to I'm I'm sure many people who are listening don't really know they see the final product of of yeah. the shows and the movies. Like what's the what's the background like? Like what are people doing behind the scenes to get this out the door? Yeah, sure. So so let let me just quickly tell you the life cycle of the average Hindi 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 television show. Um, now, now Indian television shows are, you know, 90% family drama, soap operas, right? Yep. Um, cause that's what, that's what works and that's what, that's the genre that gets the ratings. Um, the, the way a show is, is sort of born and conceived is basically, you know, a writer comes up with an idea, 
uh, an idea that should um, have a minimum span of 500 episodes uh, because it's a daily show, right? So if you're going and pitching it to a producer, the producer wants assurance that this story is long enough to you know, go on for at least a year or two. So the writer creates that broad framework. Okay, this is the story about a girl who does this, who does this, who does this, and this happens in her life, right? So that's sort of how the, the, the project proposal happens. And if, you know, if everything works out and the show gets approved, it gets greenlit, um, and the process begins. The actual writing of the show, every show has anywhere from two to four writers. Uh, so it's a team. They work collaboratively. And a show's writing team is typically split into three departments. There's the story writing team, there's the screenplay writing team, okay. and there's the dialogue writing team. So this is this is a little different from Hollywood, this format. Uh, so you have the story writing team that's sort of working on the broad, okay, month one, this is where we're going to go. The next month, we're going to move into this. Next year, we're going to look at this. Two years from now, this is going to happen. The screenplay writing team is more working on a day-to-day basis, right? So on Monday, uh, you know, Monday... Her, the wife dies. Tuesday, the husband gets remarried. Wednesday, the wife comes back again. You know, so so they're working on more a day-to-day basis. And then you have the dialogue writers, which do the obvious. Um, so that's sort of the process with, with how this works. Because television is such a ratings-driven industry, as writers, we are constantly dictated by the way the show is performing at the box office. Um, so ratings come every Friday, once a week. And if the ra- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if the ratings of the show fall, which happens very frequently, you are suddenly you have a lot of pressure on your head to bring the ratings back up because if you don't, you know, you face the threat of your show being pulled off air. So there's that constant battle of, um, you know, wanting to be creative, but also having to serve the business needs of the product. It's a business at the end of the day. So so what happened, let's say you on a Friday and you get a rating that's subpar or less than what you were hoping yeah. for what yeah. what did you do or how did you approach the next week like what was the process yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's a great question uh so what typically happens is well you try to figure out the root cause of the of the decline right sometimes what happens is uh, a rival channel in that same time slot might be doing something amazing uh so it's not that your show has become worse it's just that something better has come along right so you suddenly have to figure out what is going right on your enemy's show, and you need to create something to rival that, right? For example, in uh, you know Indian shows, weddings do very, very well. You know, wedding celebrations and sangeets and all those things on television shows do extremely well. So if if a TV show had a wedding going on, you know that's probably why your ratings dropped. Um, so you know how to address that. Interesting. But but sometimes sometimes it's just your own storytelling is not going as planned, and you sometimes what you may do is you may accelerate the drama next week. So what happens is you know to to stretch our shows as long as we can, we have something called the main drama, which is your main plot, and we have sort of the subplots. Subplots are you know like the the hero's sister and her love story going on on the side, the hero's brother and his divorce that's happening on the side the hero's uh, best friend and his little comic routine that's happening on the side. So what happens is, you know, in an event like this, what we would do is if the ratings fell, we would take out all the subplots in the next week and we would accelerate the main hero's drama because that's what viewers are really coming for. They don't really care about those sidey characters. 
um, and we would accelerate the main hero's drama. So viewers would be forced to uh, sit and watch our show and, you know, flipping channels will not be as easy. So these are all tactics that, that we use. Um, sometimes we might, you know, in, in, in major rating situations, we may do something very dramatic. Like we might get one of the main characters killed. We might bring one of the dead characters back to life. Um, we might, you know, give somebody a plastic surgery or, you know, we may suddenly reveal that someone was a villain all along. So, you know, these are classic soap opera storytelling elements. That's that's super interesting. It's like almost like you get the feedback and then you immediately apply it as soon as you, you know yeah. you hear. That's crazy. I I didn't know how it worked like that. So yeah, you 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 can usually tell by uh, what's going on in, in the rest of the TV industry that week. Uh, you you can tell what's what's caused the downfall of your of your show. That's specific. Got it. Got it. So so switching gears a little bit, right? So you 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 worked on TV and then you. Um, you transitioned to, uh, you know, your directorship um, in, yeah. in movies. What, what was that like? Walk us through that. Uh, well, I guess let me understand your question. What was the experience like or why did I do it or how did I get in? Which, yeah, which so part you, of it? you said you started with TVs, right? And then did you want – you said you've always wanted to be a film director, right? And, and be yes. into movies. Yes. So yeah. what, what was your next step after that? Yeah, you know, so so it's interesting that I was in the industry for about four years as a TV writer, and uh, I still was not able to get into film. Um, so that just goes to show you that you can spend four years in Bombay being a TV <laughs> writer, and you still may not make that transition over, right? So uh, just want to throw that out there. So, but but yes, I did really want to get into film. At the same time, I'm very. Um, you know, I'm very choosy, you know, even when I didn't have anything, I was very choosy about what kind of film I would want to work on. I was very clear that I would not work on a film or a TV show for that matter that didn't fall into my moral or ethical code in terms of if the film or if the television show was sending out a message that I did not agree with or that I did not respect, I would not be a part of it. So, for example, a sex comedy is not a I would never be a part of a sex comedy because it's not, it's not something that I maybe morally agree with, or it's not something that I'm comfortable with. Uh, it's just not something that's in my turf. So, so I was very sort of also very choosy about what kind of work I would do, uh, even as a struggler. So, um, but you know, coming back to your question, uh, when I found out that Suraj Varjat, yeah, so actually, okay. So I, I finished my gig as a TV writer I came back to America. I was pursuing my MBA in New York. And at that time, I found out that Suraj Burjatia was making his next film, uh, which was Premratan Bhanpayo. And I really wanted to be a part of it because, you know, as, as I told you, I love I loved this director. And the film was going to be about family, about relationships, a squeaky clean film you could see with, you know, your grandmother, your grandfather. Right. And I really wanted to be a part of a film like that. And hit um, all and your criteria. Absolutely. A big musical. So I really wanted to and I really wanted to learn how to make a film from a filmmaker like that. So, uh, you know, I did what I'm <laughs> what I'm best at doing. I got his number from somebody and I kept sending him text messages for months, um, nagging him for an opportunity. And uh, it was very funny, actually. I got a call at 4 a.m. Uh, New York time. I was in New York, at you know, at that point getting my MBA. And I got a call at 4 a.m. from India. Um, from somebody from Suraji's office. And and the person said, is this COVID? I said, yes. And they said, 
can you get on Skype? Suraj Barjatiya wants to interview you for his film. At 4 a.m. At, at 4 a.m. Because, you know, in India, it was, it was office hours at right. the time, right? Right. Um, and I was like, what? And so I, I jumped on Skype at about 4, 4.30 in the morning. And I had this big beard and I was looking terrible. And it was a video call. And for me, it was just seeing him on the screen in front of me was, you know, I mean, I, I, took, I did a print screen and I saved that image and I said, who knows if I'm going to see this man again in my life. Let me at least, you know, take a screenshot of this, you know, of, of me talking to my idol. And we talked and we talked for 10 minutes and that was about it. And uh, yeah, didn't hear anything after that for weeks. And then finally, uh, about two months later, I got a text message from someone in his office saying that, okay, join us from May 1st. And uh, that's how the ball got rolling. Then I then I went there and uh, I was an assistant director on that film. So Man. that's that, that's how it happened. So again, no magic formula. <laughs> Still a crazy story. So uh, so many things I want to dive into this. So you know, yeah. you 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 do the Skype interview and you you, know, you get the opportunity. Like, what was that moment like? You're just like, I am working with the director of my dreams in a movie that is going to be, you know, everything that I want to. Like, like. What happened? Yeah, like, you, know, you know, it actually didn't. I, it didn't hit me actually, almost because it was. You know, it, it was so good to be true, almost in a way that I was. I was sort of even when they said you can come on May first, I actually didn't entirely believe it. You know, this is Bollywood. Things don't. You don't get an offer letter, and you know, <laughs> n- none of that stuff happens, right? Everything is very informal. So it was just a text message, and I, so I, I was so confused. And But then it's funny because a week before I was leaving for India, I said, you know, let me just make sure this is actually happening. So then I called up uh, the man who had sent me that text message. His name is Mr. Subramanian. Very, very nice guy. And I called him and he was uh, at that at that time, he was in a music studio. They were recording one of the songs of Prematan Thanpayo. You know, the songs get recorded before the filming sure, begins. Sure. So they were recording a song at that time when I called him. And I said, you know, I'm coming in a week and, you know, I just wanted to make sure everything is good to go. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, wait a minute. Before you hang up, I want you to hear the song of the movie that's being recorded. So he put his phone on the speaker in the music studio and I got to hear the, the song. The song was Ajun Se Milnahe for anybody who's listening who's heard that song. So so um, I heard the song then. And, uh, I, you know, we, we talked and I said bye and I, and I hung up. And then I looked at my parents and I said, if they're letting me hear the song of the movie three years before the movie is going to be released, I think they're pretty sure that they, they, they want me to be on their team. Otherwise, they wouldn't reveal the song to me. So, you know, it was it was it was that was sort of it, you know. And uh, of course, I landed up in India and there were several more surreal moments after that. Yeah. So, OK, so you you you've confirmed it. You hear the song. You're like, OK, good to go. So you pack your bags again and go back. What happens yeah. next? Like, I'm, I'm sure people who are listening have seen the movie. You know, it's one of the, the biggest uh, yeah. grossing Bollywood films of all time. Like, walk yeah. us through what is it like in the background? Like, of, Yeah, of, well, it's not as glamorous as it looks. Let me put that out there first. Okay. Lots, of, lots of sweating, lots of dust biting, lots of, you know, screaming and yelling and crying and all that happens. Um, but, you know, the, the, there, there are some amazing moments as well. I mean, I think uh, for me... Less than less than the filming part of you know the, the shooting part, it's actually the planning for the shooting that excites me, because you know when you're on a set of a film like this, you have 200 crew members, you know you have five or ten very very big actors who have an entourage of their own, makeup men, costume guys, secretaries, PR agents, 
you have 200 background dancers, 500 extras, camels, elephants, horses, you know, you name it. So it's it's such a carnival when you're actually filming. And, you know, you're filming in 90 degrees, 100 degrees, monsoons, everything. That that it actually just goes by, you know, it's, it's almost like just, just getting it done. But the actual f- part of making the film, in my opinion, is before you do the filming, when you actually sit and look at the script and you say, okay, how are we going to make this film? What is the actor going to wear? Where are they going to stand? What is going to be in their hands? How are they going to react? How is the camera going to move? What music is going to play in the background? To me, that was really the fascinating part of, of making the film. And less of actually filming it. Um, so, so let so me I, ask you this: uh, So yeah. you, um, you, you do all this and this planning stuff. Did you have any experience planning all these small parts before? And was this your first time diving this into this? This is my this? first time. This is my first time. Okay. I mean, yes, yes, I had exposure to to the the craft of filmmaking because I had worked as a TV writer. So as a TV writer, I had spent a lot of time on the sets of my shows, you know, talking to actors, explaining their characters to them, briefing them on, you know, how the how the narrative is moving forward. But in terms of actually planning a shoot, no, I, you know, I hadn't been an active part of putting the putting the project together. So, okay, so uh, this is fascinating to me. And so you are in this carnival of, of things going on, planning, you know, meeting the, the, the actors, telling them what to do, where, where to stand. Like, for someone who, do, who doesn't know, what were some of the moments that really surprised you? Like, oh, wow, it's done this way, or this is way different from what I expected. Can you talk this through any stories you have about that? Oh, well, you know, several things, you know, I, I didn't realize that so much planning is involved, to be honest. I mean, everything from the earrings that the actress is going to wear to, you know, if, if the hero is sitting at the dining table and eating food from a plate, which subjis are going to be in that plate, which subjis will look good on screen, which subjis suit that character, uh, that level of detailing, I, I had no idea that that level of detailing can go into something like this. Um, I mean, I can I can give you examples from from the film. Um, yes, let me just please. think. Well, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, just things like you know, as I said, we were shooting in in, in very very hot temperatures, and uh, if you know, if you've seen the film, the film has a lot of it's about kings and queens, so there's a lot of flowers in the film, you know, in in the decoration. Uh, the heroine is uh, Sonam Kapoor. She's holding uh, rose bouquets a lot. Uh, the hero has flowers wrapped around his wrist. So there's there's a lot of flowers and and, and a lot of you know roses and marigolds and things like that. And uh, when you're working in such high temperatures all day, flowers go bad. So you know constantly one on one day one of my responsibilities was just making sure those the bouquet doesn't go bad. So making sure it stays in an air conditioned room, and then you know we bring it back to the set. When we when we shoot, you know, one shot, going and getting, you know, sending somebody to put it back in the air conditioned room, bringing it back again, making sure, you know, getting it getting it sprayed with some air, you know, whatever whatever fragrance uh, water solution there is to make sure it looks nice on camera again. So you know, it's just such a small detail when you think about it, but um, yeah, it was crazy that you know you actually have to keep track of these kinds of things too. So. Um, that is so interesting. So the subsidy, the, the flowers, all these small, small details that people yeah. see as part of the whole collection at the end, 
you know, are, sure. are, are things that are very thought through and, and, and targeted. That's, that's yeah. super cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, they're very, very thought through. And uh, I think the other big thing is, you know, action. Uh, I'm not an action guy. I don't like action movies. It's, it's just not my, it's just not my thing. And, you know, when I, when I would see action movies, I'm like, okay, big deal. Like they train these two guys to fight and they're fighting and it's done. Um, but, you know, we had action in Premarathon Bio uh, quite a bit. We had some fencing. We had uh, a scene in which a carriage, a horse, a horse, uh, a horse carriage falls from a cliff. We had, so we had several different, you know, sort of action, action sequences in the film. And uh, the action director, actually, Greg Powell, he was the action director on the Harry Potter movies as well. Um, so he's, uh, he's, he's a very experienced, uh, gentleman and, uh, working with him and working with Suraj Prajatiya, I realized that action isn't just, you just put two guys and give them knives and they fight. There's a choreography involved with action. Also, I mean, every little movement of the sword is planned, you know, okay, the sword's going to move from left to right. Then it's going to hit the knee. Then it's going to, you know, then he, then while he's moving it from left to right, the other one is going to move his right to left. And I mean, it's insane. I didn't, I didn't realize that it, it's almost as if you're choreographing a dance. I mean, it's, it's that detailed. And that's another thing that I was, I was very shocked by. And my, my respect for action went up significantly. Right, right, right. When you see all what goes into when I, it. When I see what it involves and, you know, I was actually a station to, to handle action for a few days where I was working with action directors to, you know, figure out what all they need, making sure I got that for them. And, you know, I mean, even in action, you have to figure out your gags. Okay, he's going to pick up a candlestick and throw it at him. Okay, he's going to push him against the piano. So make sure the piano is a breakable piano. Make, you know, he's going to he's gonna uh, drop a chandelier on him. So make sure the chandelier has these crystals and those crystals. And, you know, those things didn't hit me at all before. Wow. And so, you know, given that you got the call, you know, and you heard the song three years ago, what was the entire timeline from getting it from the beginning all the way till you saw it for the first time in theaters. What, what was the timeline like? Yeah. So, you know, what happens is for a typical film, um, of this scale, uh, you typically, you know, for the, for about one to two years, you just do your planning, assuming your script has been written already. You do your pre-production, right? Where you are casting your actors, you're figuring out their dates, you're getting your sets built, you're getting your costumes ready. You're putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, by the time I joined Bramerton Hunt Bio, a lot of this process was already done, uh, but there was still a lot more to do. We actually filmed the movie for about 200 something days, which is again, uh, unusual for today. Today, films are made typically, you know, in less than hundred days, but this was a, you know, it was a pretty long film. It had a lot of songs. Songs by themselves tend to make a film, uh, slow down in terms of its, filming pattern because songs just take a long time to shoot. Um, so coming back to what I was saying, we shot the film for about 200 days. After that, there were about three to four months of post-production. Post-production involves, you know, your special effects, any visual cleanup, you know, getting the dialogues dubbed by the actors, putting the background music in, you know, putting the final touches together, the editing, of course, um, the marketing, the promotion, all of that. So that's sort of the the rough cycle. And what did it feel like once it all got wrapped up and you saw your name in the in the in the in the notes? The same people you would you would write down when you were little, yeah. and you know you would yeah. message. What what was that like for you? You know, actually, it's very funny. I thought it'd be very exciting, but I was 
so tired of seeing the film by then because I had seen it like 200 times, you know, and, you know, because we had so many trial runs and test runs and things that I was just like, I can't sit through this movie again. <laughs> Here's, I'm, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. So I, you know, I, I haven't seen the film since 2000, what, 15 is when it released. I haven't seen it after that because I'm so sick of hearing those dialogues. Sure, sure. Those things, you know? It's probably so, burned into your memory, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can, if you ask me now, I can, I can start from the beginning and over the next three hours, I can I can narrate the whole, whole film to the end. <laughs> so so I, I I'm just you know so it wasn't as exciting <laughs> at that point. Got it, got it. Yeah. So uh, I I want to also talk about your books. You know that's something that yeah. I I mean you have such a a, a vast um, repertoire or resume of things screenwriter filmmaker but also author. Uh, t- talk to me about your 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 first book. Um, was it was it the Ultimate Kingdom? Uh, yeah, was that it, the it first was, one? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yes, it was. It was. It was Kingdom of the Soap Queen, and uh, I, you know, we were talking about my passion for television earlier. Sure, and uh, you know, Ekta Kapoor is rightfully so called the queen of television. Um, she's huge, and I, I grew up loving her, loving her family dramas. They inspired me a lot, um, and so, so, so that's you know, just a little bit of framework. Um, it, it was watching her shows and that movie Ham Saath which made me want to live in a joint family because I, I, I used to see those joint families on screen and I wanted to be a part of them. So I was very fascinated with her story. Um, what I was also fascinated with is sort of how this 17-year-old girl changed the, you know, the entire format of storytelling on Hindi television and how she became this, you know, one, one of the most influential women in, in, in Indian media. So... When I was uh, I, when I was working as a screenwriter in in the television business, I was writing one of her shows. It was called Bade Achhe Lagte Hain, and uh, at the time I tossed open the idea of doing a book on her success story, and that's pretty much how the ball got rolling. And then I, I wrote that book, and it was it was it was ex- it was a great experience because not only did I get to uh, you know of course get my hands wet in book writing. But I spoke to, you know, hundreds of people who have been a part of shaping her company, Balaji Telefilms. And as as a novice, it gave me a lot of understanding of how, what what it goes into building an enterprise and what it goes into being successful in a creative business. So, yeah. Yeah. So, what, what talk to us through, like, what did you learn? Like, what were those key takeaways that you, after doing those hundred interviews and, and, and writing the book, what what were the big things that you learned that, that you didn't know before? Um, well, you know, lots of things. I think one is the importance of understanding your audience. Uh, Ekta Kapoor, you know, really understands who the average viewer of Indian television is. And the average viewer is the, the typical Indian uh, housewife, middle class housewife. And which is why television is so geared towards the kitchen and, you know, family politics and so on and so forth, which a lot of people are critical of, but that is the main viewing audience. So, so I realized the importance of understanding your audience and, and telling stories that they can relate to. That's why today on Hindi television, the the hero of every show is a woman and that woman, her profession is being a housewife because that is the hero the viewer is going to identify with. So I realized that the importance of, of understanding your viewer and catering to that 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 viewership. Um, apart from that, the business model, right? The business model of 
uh, what does it take to run a television company and and how do you uh you know how do you mass produce i mean at what at at the at the pinnacle of their success balaji telefilms was making 18 daily soaps at one time wow that that's the equivalent of making nine motion pictures every single day um you know so 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 that that that's that's insane that's crazy um so so you know and what what how do you mass produce something like that and still be so good at doing it so i think that you know those are all these are all interesting lessons that i learned and when you were writing the the novel and and, and getting the interviews and, and 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 synthesizing it for the book did you yeah. have any idea of like okay i have this great story how do i get this in front of people who want to read it like i'm i'm sure many people are listening don't truly understand how a book is made and how, how yeah. like how did you learn all that and, and what did you find out well you know you you learn it on the job right i think what 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 <laughs> i feel that's like a theme of your of your life learn it on the job <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much pretty you, you nailed it right so i think uh but but um what happens and this i learned as i as i worked on the book is when you are writing a non-fiction book which is about a real person which is about a living person and which is about a very public figure there's a lot of things you have to think about when writing and uh, unfortunately you can't write everything you would like to write um there's a lot of things that I did want to write that I couldn't because of various reasons because of uh you know the fact that you are writing about somebody who's living and you have to be very careful with your words um the fact that you could hurt sentiments or the fact that you could potentially tarnish your career so there's a lot of factors you have to take into mind when 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 writing a book like this um so that was one one sort of struggle i faced the second is uh i was very interested in in not ekta kapoor but her company and how she created this company and how it succeeded um typically when people read about celebrities in india well why just india even in america they want the dirt right they want to know about the affairs the scandals the fights you know all of those things and my book was not geared towards that at all so that was also sort of you know a tightrope i was walking on where how do i keep this engaging but how do i also make sure that it's not getting into filmy gossip um so that was also a little bit of a tricky area for me to for me to tackle got it got it yeah and and then you know you you wrote this book and it it got published walk us through how you then decided to write your second book the redrawing india the teach for india story yeah. i know you were quite uh involved for with 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 that what is the genesis behind that book yeah you know so um so i i yeah as you said you know i used to work for teach for india i worked with them for a year right when i was starting out my career and uh, at that time teach for india was very new it was in its first or second year you know they had basically taken the teach for america model and they had done a, a copy paste in india right um but of course in the process they realized that india is a very different country and while the model is great it's got to be customized according to the way india operates um having said that one very interesting facet of the teach for america teach for india teach teach concept in general is the fact that there's an effort to build a long term movement of leaders that will solve this education problem what i mean by that is you know everybody thinks of, t- of teach for india and they think of okay going and teaching in poor schools for 2 years and you know making a difference in the lives of kids for 2 years and then moving on with your life the idea however is much deeper the idea is that fine you teach kids for 2 years that's great wonderful but 
after those two years, you go on and do whatever you want in your life, but you still continue to impact education. Because the the mindset behind this mission is that, you know, just by putting great teachers in classrooms, illiteracy is not going to be eradicated. You need people in government that are making policies for our kids. You need doctors that are giving good treatment to the poorest of kids. You need lawyers that are fighting for abused kids. You need filmmakers that are making films about these education problems. So it's only when people from every industry join together will this problem get solved. Just putting good teachers in schools isn't going to do it. That's important. Those are, They're the ones who have the most direct interaction with uh, the most marginalized kids, but they can't do it without the support of these other industries. So, sorry, I took a little long in explaining that. No, but it's, the it's idea, good. But so, so the idea is that it, illiteracy will be eradicated when we have a movement of leaders across industries that are solving this problem. So so we, we call it a jigsaw at Teach for India. It's a jigsaw puzzle. When the pieces come together, the jigsaw puzzle will be will be complete. So the idea is when you leave Teach for India, have you figured out what your piece in that puzzle is and how you're going to address it? So for me, my piece was media. I, I knew it. I knew that I was never going to be a teacher in a school. I was never going to, you know, dedicate my life to volunteering. I was, I, I knew that. But I knew that as somebody who wanted to be a filmmaker, writer, author, I could make an impact via that means. So, so that's how this idea for the book was born to me. I said, why don't I write a book on the Teach for India movement and how people are changing the education space through this movement? Hopefully people will pick up my book, they will read it, and they will also get inspired to join this group of people. So that, that's how this book idea sort of came. I realized that I had to work on my jigsaw piece, which was, you know, writing a book, making a movie, doing things like this. Got it. Got it. Um, and what, and what was your experience like writing this book compared to the, the story of Balaji Telefilms? Was it different, similar? What, what, what yeah, was it like? well, you know, you know, I think the format was similar in that both of them are real stories. Both of them are about women who started up organizations from scratch. Uh, both of them involved a lot of research of real life stories. Uh, both of them were very inspirational stories. Um, having said that, you know, I think I think what happens with Teach for India is uh, um, there's also a responsibility, you know, because with every word that you write, you're accountable to the children you're writing this for, right? Um, you you want to make sure every story you're putting out there is going to make a difference in the lives of these kids. That level of onus and that level of responsibility, I did not feel in my pre previous book. That was a fun book. You know, I was writing it because I loved television. I wanted to tell a story. Okay. But I felt a lot like I had a lot more responsibility in my second book. You know, I was talking to these people who had, I was talking to people who had dedicated their lives to eradicating educational inequity. And I felt responsible to showcase their stories correctly and to respect the time that they had given me. So I, I felt the responsibility was a lot more in, in that sense. Got it. Um, yeah. And ha having said that, you know, as I mentioned before, Teach for India, it's a global movement. I think more than almost 50 countries now around the world have a Teach for China, Teach for Japan, you know, et cetera, so on and so forth. There's a Teach for Pakistan now as well, Teach for Malaysia. So so it's a global movement. So so this book also gave me the opportunity to, you know, I, I went to New York. I met Wendy Kopp, who was the founder of Teach for America. We chatted. It was it, I had a great you know, meet up with her. Um, so this also gave me a chance to sort of go beyond India and, and then see what people in the world are doing. 
which is better than or worse than or similar to what what India is doing. Right, right. And once you published the book, you know, you wanted to get the story out because it's something that you were really passionate about. What was some yeah. of the feedback and perspective you got from people? Was were, Did you hear from anyone that was inspired by the story or decided to join or became more involved because they either read the book or, or heard the story for, for Teach for India? Yeah, well, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, uh, I actually, I, I sometimes get tagged in a tweet on Twitter or somebody tweets to me or they Instagram to me or they, they Facebook me saying that they read the book or that they're reading the book or that, or that they've just, you know, now Teach for India is, is 10 years old. So a lot of times I hear from, you know, new kids, I'll call them kids, you know, in their early 20s that are now joining Teach for India, and, but they don't know, you know, the history of this 10-year-old organization and they don't know what their alumni are doing now. So a lot of them pick up the book as sort of a, a textbook kind of in a way to, to, you know, to understand what is this organization about that they're joining and, and you know, how can they create long-term, uh, a long-term impact. So I do, I do hear from, from people occasionally and it's, it's nice. It's nice to hear that, of course. And, and the, the fact that you wrote that book is, is inspiring. But the other inspiring thing that I, I read that I, I would love to touch upon is your nonprofit India Kids. Mm-hmm. It, um, what, what was the story behind that? How did that come up? Was it your experience working for Teach for India, writing the book? Where did that and how has that come up? Yeah. So, you know, uh, when we were at UT, um, my uncle in India, he adopted a child. So what happened is he had a biological son of his own. Um, and he, you know, he only had one child. And one day he happened to be walking on the road. This is a true story, by the way. He was walking on the road and he heard, um, the cries of a baby coming from somewhere. And he looked through the bushes and he found a plastic bag, which was tied up. And there was a baby inside of that plastic bag. No way. Uh, who was blue. And it was, it was a girl and a newborn, you know, probably a day or two old. And he took the girl to the hospital and everything and all that. And then he, he, he adopted her eventually. Um, but what I realized that that incident made a big impact on me. And, uh, you know, it, it even came in the newspaper and th- there was a beautiful picture on the Rajasthan Patrika of my, my mommy, my, my aunt uh, with, with the baby. And the headline said, for those who understand Hindi, the headline said, Ab bete ke which in English translate to now our son will finally get a Rocky on his hand. Um, and it wow. was, it was so beautiful. It, it, it was so beautiful that, you know, it, it just, it really touched me. And, but, but, you know, I started questioning what would have happened had he not found that child? Um, and, and what sort of a devil does it take for you to tie your baby in a plastic bag and dump her in the bushes? What, what sort of a sick person do you have to be? Or, how how helpless do you have to be to take a step like that? Um, and that that got the wheels churning in my head. So this was in college, of course. But when I moved to India and I was working with Teach for India and, you know, I was meeting all these great people, I started visiting orphanages in Mumbai um, just on my own, you know, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. And I just really just just in my heart, I felt that I wanted to do something for kids who had, you know, who didn't have parents. And I, but then, you know, there's 31 million orphans in India. I mean, there's, there's need everywhere you look. I obviously didn't have the resources to help so many. Um, so I decided I would work with the most marginalized group of orphans possible because even, unfortunately, even within orphans, there's tears, right? There's tears of 
privilege that orphans have as well. Um, you have the most privileged orphans and you have the most underprivileged orphans. So the group that I found to be the most underprivileged were orphans whose mothers were sex workers. Um, you know, Mumbai has one of the biggest red light areas in Asia, if not the biggest, actually. It's called Kamatipura, and uh, it's, it's, it's streets and streets and streets that are lined with brothels. Um, and there's so many children there that are born into prostitution, you know. These are girls and boys whose mothers were sex workers. Obviously, they have no idea who their fathers were for the obvious reason. Um, and these are kids, you know, that they may in fact be born with HIV or STDs. And if they aren't helped, the girls will become sex workers and the boys will become pimps. So I felt the need was the highest in that area. And uh, that's how I got involved. And uh, India Kids, you know, sort of started sponsoring scholarships for these kids uh, for their college education because college isn't free, unlike schooling. And that's how the, the ball got rolling. And uh, it's been it's been very ins inspiring to us uh, to see kids from these kinds of backgrounds thrive despite the circumstances that they're put in. So it's been it's been very humbling. And yeah, it's been great. That's incredible, Kovit. That's um, what a story. Is, is that um, like where where if people want to find out more information about um, India kids, where can they where can they go and, and, and check out for more information? Yeah, so so our our we actually have a new website coming up. Uh, our old website is sort of going under construction. It's uh, indiakids.org, or you know you can email me at covid.cup.indiakids.org. We have a Facebook page as well, so you can go and see us on that as well. It's just called India Kids. We have, or you can tweet to us as well. Okay, awesome, awesome. Yeah. Cool. So I'd love to now transition to some of the the rapid fire questions that we have that 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 sure. people would love to. To, to get your thoughts on. So first, yeah. um, I would want to know your most worthwhile investment, both time and money. And the reason I ask this is, is people yeah. have a different view on, on what's important to them. So have you bought something or is there something that, that you've invested in, in terms of your time and money that has truly made an impact on your life that you can think of? Oh, wow. Um, so I think, uh, I think, you know, in terms of money, uh, I invest a lot in real estate. Um, so that's been a great investment. But I'm, that's strictly financial terms I'm talking in, right? Um, but but in terms of just, you know, time time investment, um, I read a lot. This may sound very cliched, but uh, I read anything and everything I can get my hands on. I, I read for almost two to three hours a day. Uh, so I think uh, that has been sort of one of my biggest time investments. I think my growth as a writer is completely completely catered to that. Um, so I, I would say that that has been my biggest time investment. So in, in terms of books, are there any top two or three books that you would recommend um, that, that hey, A, has either been made a big impact on your life or something that you've gifted most to most people? Like, what are those books you can share? Uh, you know, it, it, it really depends on, I think, what uh, the listener is, is interested in because I read books sort of all over all you know all the way from nonfiction to fiction to a lot of times I just read play scripts or you know sort of I'm, I'm all over the place but I think you know I think some books that uh, that have inspired me um, the five people you meet in heaven uh, by Mitch album that that's a book that definitely made a big impact on me um, there's another book it's called how to be like Walt uh, which is Walt Disney um, which sort of gives you an insight into what Walt Disney was like and what things you can adapt into your life to be to be like him 
Um, yeah, I think those are two books that 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 I really love. And uh, if I think if some more come to me, I'll mention them to you. Okay, perfect, perfect. Um, yeah. And so the, the next question I'd love to ask is. Um, are there any unusual habits that you have just whether in life or in, in, in filmmaking or screenwriting that you have that um, you're like, oh, this is something that I do that, that really no one else does? Can you think of anything like that that's, that's unusual, that's specific to you? Um, well, you know, I don't know if this, is, uh, if this is necessarily unusual or specific to me, but I, um, I procrastinate a lot. I'm, I'm, which I, is a problem a lot of people have, where I, I'm, I'm very lazy, I'm very lethargic, it's very, it's very difficult to get me to do any work. Um, and having said that, I, I, I run my life on timers. Um, I, I use timers to sort of get my work done, where I, I put timers and, you know, I have to get X amount of work done within a certain time frame, you know, 30 minutes, one hour, and I'm not allowed to get up from my seat until that's done. That, that's one thing that, that, that's sort of a habitual thing that I have. Uh, that I'm that I'm very strict about. Um, so so that's that's super interesting. So like, let's say you have to get something done. How do you like walk us through exactly what you do? Let's say you, you do you open up your laptop or you know you get out your, sure, your notepad. Sure, yeah. So if I'm if I'm if I'm writing, for example, right, which I which obviously I do a lot of, I um I will set a timer for sixty minutes, and I will tell myself I have to write five pages within sixty minutes, um, which might be too ambitious or whatever. I might say ten pages, whatever. And I, by the end of 60 minutes, I have to write that amount. And if I'm not, I have to keep doing it until, you know, even if it's, even if it's complete trash, I have to have five to 10 pages written in that much time. And I will not get up until that's, until that's done. Um, that's sort of a discipline metric for me. You know, while we're on this, Samir, one more thing that I do, I've actually very recently started doing and it's worked great for me. Um, I'm going to do, give a little plug in for a website. It's called focusmate.com. It was started by one of my friends. From Teach for India, and it's actually, it's it's interesting. All you do is you you set up a time, you get on webcam with a complete stranger from any part of the world. You get on the webcam, you both talk for a minute. You tell that person what you're going to work on. He or she tells you what they're going to work on, and for the next hour, two hours, three hours, you both quietly do your work. But that person is watching you the entire time. So it's it's interesting. A, it's, it's a discipline metric for. To ensure that uh, you know you can't go and lie down, you can't go and you know watch TV, um, because that this random person who doesn't know you is watching you the entire time. Um, and I'm actually planning to take this a step forward, and I think I'm going to start sharing my screen with people, um, <laughs> so they can see the the drafts yeah, that you're so, writing. You, know, I, you can't go on YouTube, you can't go on Facebook because that person can watch your screen the entire time, but potentially even recording my three hour session so that uh, I know and and sending that to that person so I know that. At any point, that person can put that video out there, and the whole world can see it. Which is, which these things sound very crazy and very extreme, but believe me, they dis- they discipline you a lot. No, I love that. That's the genius. What's the name of the uh, the site again? It's called Focusmate. Focusmate. Okay, cool. That, yeah, should, we'll, we'll put that in the show out. notes for sure. So, so everyone listening. The other thing, the other thing I do is I um, again because I write, I I go uh, laptop less many times, which is uh, and and I write by by pen and paper which a lot of people don't do in our generation anymore. Right. But and, and it is double work to write something on paper and then do type it out again. But I do that just so that I don't get distracted by, you know, technology. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I find that when I write uh, with, you know, a, a pen and paper, I sometimes can just 
focus better. You know, we talked about the, the distractions that you have if you're on your computer, but with, with pen and paper, it's just something about, oh, and I can, um, you know, remember things better if I write it down versus, uh, versus type Absolutely. it up. So I, I, I love that. Um, yeah. cool. So the, the, the other question I want to ask you, COVID, is, um, and we touched on this a little bit briefly, but I'm sure a lot of people listening are, are love Bollywood movies or love Bollywood television or want to become a, yeah. a, a screenwriter. If sure. you, if you had to give advice to an up and coming South Asian person who wants to break in the field, mm-hmm. what advice would you give them and why? Yeah, you know, um, so I think, I think there are a couple of things. I, I read a quote recently which I think is so applicable to to any advice I'd give to someone. The quote was, work until your idols become your rivals. Um, which, you know, which basically implies, you know, you should work so hard that one day the people you idolized are now your competition or you are now their competition. Um, so if you, you know, if, if, if your dream is to become the next J.K. Rowling, you should work until J.K. Rowling is sort of your competition and you're pitted against her. Um, the, you know, and that, that to me was, was, was very driving in a way, you know? So I think, I think um, perseverance is, is very important as cliche as that sounds. You know, what happens in, in creative fields is people tend to give up very easily. They give themselves timelines and timelines are very dangerous. Um, you know, in, in, in the past seven, eight years that I've been in India, I have seen, and I won't take any names here, but I have seen, Numerous, numerous NRIs come to India to break it into Bollywood. They stay for a few months, six months, one year, two years, whatever. They get tired and they come back to America. Um, while I understand the reasoning behind that, I'm not denying that at all. You've got to give it time, though. You've got to give yourself a fair shot, and you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to give it a proper chance, you know. And I think the way we are raised, it's very easy to say well, what if you don't make it and you're just wasting time? And, well, look at what else you could have done in those five years. All that is there, absolutely. I'm not denying that. But if if you want to go into it, go into it all out. I think what happens is, as South Asians, we, we tend to have this backup mentality. We all do, which is which is important, right? Yeah, so what's if, your plan B and C, right? Absolutely, absolutely, right? And I, I hear that day and night, all the time. I have been hearing that for the last decade. Um. But, you know, in reality, I don't have a plan B and C. I mean, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was at McCombs at UT. I never recruited there. I was, you know, when I was getting my MBA at Cornell, I didn't once step into a corporate recruiting event. And people said, are you crazy? You're, you're at an MBA program and you have these great companies going and you're not going to a corporate re- recruiting event. And I said, why? I don't, I don't want to work for a corporate. Um, I, I want to get the business skills and I want to go back to Bollywood. And which people thought was very crazy. And it, it probably was very crazy. I, I could have been earning probably, you know, five times what I'm earning right now. But but the idea is that I never gave myself that, that chance to have a plan B, which is dangerous as well. But I, I, I firmly believe in that. When you when you believe in something, believe in it all the way, unquestionably, um, because otherwise it's not, you are leaving that 1% doubt that, oh, well, this may not work out, so I have something. You're not going to give it your full. Um, you may think you are giving it your full, but you're not going to unless you invest. A hundred percent in it. I, I've always been very clear about it. You know, there's something in my language. I never say if. I always say when. Yeah. So I never tell anybody if I win the film fair award, I'm going to do this. I say when I win the film fair award, 
I'm going to do X, Y, Z. It's a very small nomenclature change, but just changing if to when changes your mindset. I love that. I love that. And I love that quote, work until you, you know, you're yeah. right. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Your idols become your rival. Idols become your rival. I love that. I love that. And um, cool. I, I That is just, just so, so inspiring. And I'm sure a lot of people listening um, will hopefully take that to heart. Um, cool. So I, I just want to wrap it up uh, and, and, yeah. and, and talk through, do you have any final ask for the audience, anything you'd like to, to leave them with as, as, as a parting thought? I know you had some great things to say about advice, but anything else that you'd like to, to leave people with? Well, you know, I think that's it. I mean, I think I, 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 I think I, I said it in the last question. I think one thing that I, that I always tell people, um, you know, is I think we're all intrinsically good human beings, but what tends to happen is with times, with needs of industries, people tend to change their beliefs, tend to change their morals, tend to change their ethics, their values. Um, I'm a tr- huge believer in goodness and in the goodness of mankind. And I, and, I, and I really, really believe that it's very easy to get straight ethically or to make decisions that temporarily benefit you at the cost of others. But that's not how you're going to succeed in the long run. And I know this sounds very, very, you know, said and done before, but it really is true. I really do believe in that power of goodness. And it's it's very important to be good from inside and to, and to take everyone together because that, that does pay off. I've seen it. I've seen good karma paying off repeatedly uh, in, in my own life, right? You don't have to be nasty. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to cheat people or be fraudulent to succeed. Yes, a lot of people have, and especially in a place like Bollywood, 99% have. But uh, that doesn't create long-term wealth. And when you're on your deathbed, you don't take the awards with you. You don't take the fame with you. You don't take the money with you. What, what you take with you to your grave are your ethics, your morals, and beliefs. So it's it's very, very important to have those to the last second. And people will respect you for those. So I, I just like to say that. I think it's it's such an important thing. Um in, in, in Hindi, we have a slogan that that says that that says "kisi ki chitta par chula jalate." In English, that translates to "you should never cook your food on someone else's pyre, on someone's funeral pyre." That that fire, you should never you should never cook your food on that fire. So, the the analogy is you should never succeed at the cost of someone else's yeah. success. So so it's you know and and it's very easy to do that. And, and not think you're doing it. So I think it's something to keep in mind always. That, that's all. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, and so if if someone wants to get in touch with you, COVID, and, and you know, uh, hear a little bit more if they have any sure. further questions, where can people find you on, on social so, or, or, or contact information? Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. And my email is kogupta at gmail.com. So... I'm happy to respond on email as well. Okay, perfect, perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for, for, for being on the podcast, man. There's just so much great stuff that people can go on the website and, and check out the show notes and, and we'll have links to everything that COVID mentioned. Um, but uh, COVID, we really, really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Samir. It was great, great chatting and uh, absolutely enjoyed it. Hey guys, it's Samir again. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories on South Asians around the world, 
please check out SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com and subscribe to our email list. That's SouthAsianStoriesPodcast.com. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.